Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. The future will be amazing. And that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400 horsepower Nissan Z. Or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome to another edition of the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I am your host. I am your guide as together we cross the time space continuum to this place that I call the Exxon. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the Exxon comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and Simul Radio TV. If you would like to uh, send me an email, it's very simple. It's the same email address I've had for the past 30 years, exxon at exxonradiotv.com. On all social media sites, TV. And um, to find out about the programming on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, and on the Exxon TV channel on Simultv, simultv.com. And in the search engine, just type in Exxon. My guest this hour is Alan Castles, and uh, he has been immersed in the pharmaceutical policy research and healthcare journalism for 25 years. 
mostly researching and writing about how prescription drugs are regulated, marketed, prescribed, and used. Now, the main focus of Alan's writing is the reality of ordinary people who are often facing the sharp end of the pharmaceutical marketing machine, which is increasingly selling us tests, treatments, and theories of disease that turn more and more of us into patients. His books include Selling Sickness, How the World's Biggest Pharmaceutical Companies Are Turning Us All Into Patients. It was co-written by um, Ray Mo- uh, Mo- Moynihan. How do you say that, uh, Alan? Moynihan. Moynihan, okay. The ABCs of Disease Mongering, an Epidemic in 26 Letters, and Seeking Sickness, Medical Screening, and the Misguided Hunt for Disease. Now, Alan believes that humans need clean, clear health information as urgently as they need clean water. His recent book, The Cochrane Collaboration, Medicine's Best Kept Secret, which was published in 2015, weighs into the history of an international organization which produces high-quality medical information. Now, joining me now from Victoria, British Columbia, on the west coast of Canada, is Alan Castles. And Alan, welcome back to the X-Zone. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Um, wow. It's, you know, every time you turn on the TV, there's a, there's a commercial for med- medical uh, pharmaceuticals. Not so much here in Canada, but, the, but from the States. And everywhere you look on the Internet... There's something new about the healthcare. There's something new about pharmaceuticals. There's something new about anything that has to do with the regulation of pharmaceuticals and so on. So I would imagine that these are very busy days for you. Yeah, there's always something new and there's always something interesting. You're, you're right, though, that the uh, the average TV mm-hmm. watcher is going to get sort of consumed by the uh, the amount of advertising for drugs, uh, certainly if you're watching American TV. Um you know, the only country in the world next to New Zealand that has allows uh, prescription drugs advertised to consumers. And I, I think that probably um, is really one of the major factors why we have such a such an over prescribing culture of all that marketing. Yeah, it's, it's you know, like it's see, is it my imagination, Alan, or are people getting sicker these days? Well, I remember when I was a kid, you know, you heard about illness very rarely, but in today's society, you talk to somebody, they've got three or four different diseases, they're taking 12, 14 different prescriptions for them. Like, what's yeah, going on? You know, it's a good question. Uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with our, our, our culture, which mm-hmm. really over-diagnoses things. You know, um, uh, five five years ago, you never really would have heard the term over-diagnosis in medical circles. Right. And now... Um, there are international conferences just, you know, just focused on this problem of overdiagnosis, the idea that that there are too many people who are being labeled as sick and too much medicine being produced uh, or being marketed to people who are not sick but could be sick. And, and that's uh, and I think that's a real problem because a lot of times you end up uh, causing people anxiety and worry right. uh, when you're marketing diseases mm-hmm. uh, in addition to marketing drugs. Well, let me ask you this. Let's start at the very beginning. Why should this topic be of interest to the average person listening tonight? Well, because I think most people are, as you say, swimming in this world of, mm-hmm. of thinking that there's so much disease and so much illness around. And uh, 
it's probably the most important thing in our lives is how healthy we are and how uh, and the, the health of our families. So clearly this this is important um, um, for us to to make sure we're doing what we can to stay healthy. Right. But at the same time, there's an awful lot of a lot of money to be made in convincing people that they could be healthier or, you know, they may be sick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was the, the, the real um, thrust of the first book that I wrote with Ray Moynihan, Selling Sickness, is that um, there's simply not enough genuinely sick people out there. So the pharmaceutical industry, among others, has been very uh, aggressively targeting the well, uh, you know, promoting drugs and treatments and screening to people who aren't sick, but who could be convinced that they might have something that they need to worry about and be concerned about. Well, let and that's, me, yeah. No, no, I was, I was just going to ask you, now you, you, you write and, and you've even mentioned that screening is overpromoted, uh, you know, and oversold. What are some of the good examples that you can share with us? Well, probably the most common examples that your listeners are going to be aware of is, is a screening for breast cancer, yeah. or a mammography screening, mm-hmm. or for men, screening for prostate cancer, and that's using a PSA test, yeah. a, a test that measures an antigen in your blood. And you might say, well, what's wrong, Alan, with, with uh, finding these early signs of cancer so that um, we can do something uh, about it? Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, when I started researching this you know, more than a decade ago, I felt the same way. You know, we should be screening people, uh, if it's safe to do so, for early signs of disease, because then we could do something about it. Right. But the more you dive into the research around prostate cancer screening or breast cancer screening, there are shocking bits of fact everywhere you turn. I mean, I'll give you one example, and that is... Um, prostate uh, screening, for mm-hmm. example, um, it's very good at finding this this what could be a marker for precancer. And most men, where this is this, uh, they're told that they have a high prostate uh, reading, high PSA reading, are going to be offered surgery or uh, radiation uh, or other kinds of treatments without ever being told that your likelihood that that prostate cancer is going to kill you is very small. And in fact, Hmm. um, men my age, mid-50s, if you were to do a biopsy of everyone's prostate or do a PSA test on everyone, probably half of us have signs of cancer. Well, so they say, well, shouldn't we do something about that? Well, no, because the kinds of cancer that most of us are going to have in our prostates is the slow-growing type that is never going to go on to kill us, that most of us, if we live long enough, are going to die with prostate cancer, but not because of it. Uh, and I know that because there, I've looked at big studies of, of autopsy studies where men who die of other things, most of them have some signs of prostate cancer. But... Um, if you find it, you do something about it. And so uh, you have a huge amount of overdiagnosis, which is men who get unnecessarily treated. And that treatment, if it was benign and didn't hurt you, you'd say, well, what's the big deal, Alan? Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not benign. Um, a certain percentage of men that have uh, prostate screening are going to end up with a biopsy. Some of them will develop a serious infection that requires them to be hospitalized. Uh, many of them will have the prostates removed. 
And many of those men will end up becoming incontinent or impotent for the rest of their lives uh, for something that never was going to go on to hurt them. Fascinating. Listen, Alan, you and I have to take our first break uh, for this hour, so please stand by. And explanation, our guest this hour is Alan Castles. And if you'd like to find out more about Alan, here's a website. It's the um, www.ti.ubc.ca. And that's the home of the therapeutic initiative. Once again, www.ti.ubc.ca. And this is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Once again, if you'd like to send me an email, Exxon at ExxonRadioTV.com. On all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And um, we'll be back on the other side of this short break investigating the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology and all important matters in between and on either sides because you, the members of the Exxon Nation, are what matter on this show. I'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. And welcome back, everyone. Alan Castles is our special guest this hour. Once again, his website is www.ti.ubc.ca. You know, Alan, I, for one, am very happy about the new PSA test. It's a lot better than the alternative was. Uh, so thank God for medical advances. Um, but to find, would, would you say that, that all these tests, many of which you say are not necessary, are just another way to fill the coffers of somebody's pocket? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, that, that's the short answer. I mean, yeah. the long answer is is that, um, you know, just to, to give medicine the benefit of the doubt is that, mm-hmm. you know, if you can find signs of disease before it goes on to hurt someone, that could be an overall benefit to humankind, right? right. I agree. So, and, and, and there are some screening programs that actually do have some benefit. I mean, the, probably the, 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 the one that probably is the best is the, um, the pap smear screening. So, mm-hmm. you know, they can do um, examinations of women, uh, a very a simple exam that can find um, precancerous um, signs and, uh, and, and, and action can be taken to prevent, you know, any mm-hmm. mortality. Right. And so, good thing, we should be doing it. Uh, uh, a lot of women are convinced by their doctors, a good thing. And and so, we're, it's good that we've got some screening programs that work. At the same time, um, screening is such big business that there's so much money to be made to not just sell mm-hmm. all the treatments that come after the screening, but to sell the screening itself. And you know, one of the most recent examples uh, is a lung cancer screening. So as you know, um, 
heavy smokers might have a higher risk of developing cancer in their yeah, lifetime. Right. And if you can do a screening program using, say, um, CT scanning to find uh, tumors uh, early, mm-hmm. then that would be a good thing. Uh, there was just a study published, by the way, in the last two weeks, which shows how crazy the whole lung cancer screening thing is, is because even if you screen tens of thousands of former smokers, and these are former heavy smokers, not just people who smoked a little bit when they were younger, but fairly, you know, people who smoked a pack a day for 20 years or 30 years, the, 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 um, the benefit of screening over non-screening is so small that there is actually no, they determined there is no overall mortality benefit. Hmm. It is to say, those people that get screened do not live any longer than those who aren't screened. But isn't it also, like I was saying before, it's a matter of money if people can, you know, if, if, for example, here in Ontario, there are certain tests that if you take because you're, you've got OHIP, it's covered by the government. Yes. And, you know, here in Ontario, if you can get more than five minutes when you visit a doctor, you're doing good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? It, it is. And yeah. I, I, I'll give you a perfect example. I went to my, my family doctor, and um, I, I went there to get my prescriptions refilled, like I do every three months. I give her my blood pressure chart and so on and so forth. And then I asked her a question. She said, no, you're not here to ask me that question. Make another appointment. <laughs> I said, yes. but I'm here now. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. excuse me, what is it? What What's more important today in the medical community? Is it the patient or is it the money? Well, certainly uh, you, you see other doctors will say one visit, one complaint. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, you have to divide your complaints into visits, right? It's, exactly. It's, it's crazy how that, that works. And uh, a, yeah. fr- a friend of mine came up with a perfect solution. Yeah. He goes into the hospital to the emergency ward and he says, I'm having problems breathing. My heart is racing fast. I don't feel good. I've got pains in the chest. He gets admitted. Yeah. And while he's there, he talks to the doctors who come in and they run every test. <laughs> Yeah. No, that's that's it's pretty bad when you've got to when you've got to submit yourself to doing things underhand because you can't get to see the doctor. I, once again, I remember when I was a kid, Dr. St. Ange in Chambly, where I used to live with my parents. Fifteen bucks for a house call. Yeah. You know, and he'd be there what, thirty, forty minutes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that was back then. Yeah. B- but this come brings me back to my original point, Alan. How come there's such a difference in the lifestyles today and so many people are sicker today than they were back there? Yeah, though it's a good question. And I don't know whether people are sicker or whether they believe that they're sicker. So, mm. you know, the um, I'll give you, you know, some example that, that's on my radar. Okay. We study this quite closely. We look at diabetes, right? So. Yep. The, the very definitions of diabetes have uh, been highly influenced by the pharmaceutical industry. So it used to be that if you had a hemoglobin A1C, and this is a measurement of blood sugar mm-hmm. sugar in your blood, if you had it and it was above 8, uh, 
that would be a sign that you are having too high a blood sugar and you should be doing something about it. Right. And then doctors right. would recommend people, you know, exercise more, modify their diet, perhaps don't eat as much um, sugar or starchy kinds of food and so on. Well, then that number over time, and I've seen this, say, in the last 15 years, that number went to seven. Mm-hmm. And so when you take the 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 definition and you, you're not changing what it means to be a diabetic, you're changing the definition from an eight to a seven, you have suddenly overnight created tens of thousands of more diabetics, yep. just changing that number. And then, you know... <laughs> You know, I've got a young friend of mine, well, young, a guy who's my age, you know, mid-50s, super fit. He's a cyclist. He started asking me about a particular diabetes drug, and I said to him, because I, I do drug research, and I right. said, so so why are you asking that? And he said, oh, I've been told I got diabetes. I said, really, what's your hemoglobin A1C? And he said, well, it's six and a half. And I said, that's absurd. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be that, you know, eight and then it was seven. And now they're saying that you have, have, have an A1C of six and a half that you're defined as diabetic. And this guy has everything going for him. He's healthy, uh, fit, very active. And I said, you know, you've just suddenly been turned into a patient because of a definition of diabetes. And so when we worry about our doctors not having enough time for us and forcing us to have, you know, five minute visits, part of it is that the guidelines that are driving doctors' uh, behavior has been have been written by the pharmaceutical industry. So, so they're measuring people's diabetes, telling them they're diabetic, and then you know all the drugs and and monitoring that happens oh, after yeah. that. Yes. Sure. Yeah, so got... we end up making people's lives busy around mm-hmm. around possible disease, not real disease. When did the pharmaceutical industry start taking over the healthcare industry? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, um, it's always been very heavily involved. Uh, as you know, the, the the thing is about about prescription drugs is mm-hmm. that you can't go and buy them off the shelf. You need to have a learned intermediary to prescribe them. Right. And and so the pharmaceutical industry, of course, knows this very well. And so in order for them to get their drugs sold, they have to convince the prescriber that that's what they need to do. And so this is why you see so much money and effort and energy and in my, in my, in my opinion bamboozlement that happens to our doctors is because the pharmaceutical industry is so heavily involved in the i would say the care and feeding of our physicians uh, i think the, the 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 research is pretty definitive that those doctors that have the least contact with the pharmaceutical industry who don't take the meals don't go on the trips don't go to the funded dinners and so on. Who don't Those ex- the, are actually better prescribers. So the doctors who aren't on the take. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's not just Alan Castle's opinion. This is oh no, I agree with you one hundred percent. I agree with you as as a layperson yeah. and and as somebody who has worked uh, within the medical community, uh, I've seen this myself. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's pretty shocking yeah. that we still allow it, that we still allow um, the drug industry to be fairly centrally involved in the education of physicians. Um, and, you know, the group that I work with, we, we do independent education. We're not funded by the pharmaceutical industry. We get our money from the government. 
Um, we try to be as objective and and um, and uh, you know really look at drugs with a critical eye because they're very important drugs, but they shouldn't be overused or misused either. Right? Well, if there's this much control, how come we're we're looking at such an opiate uh, crisis in Canada as well as the United States? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question, and and some would argue, and uh, I think there's some good evidence in Canada where the Again, the pharmaceutical industry was very involved in the reshaping of the definitions of pain control, uh, where Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which makes a drug called OxyContin, mm-hmm. which really is at the at the heart of the of the uh, opioid crisis, they were very involved in in doing physician education. They had seminars at the University of Toronto. They helped underwrite the creation of uh, pain guidelines. Um, and so when you've got the drug companies convincing physicians what pain is and how they should treat it, um, don't be surprised that we now have a, an epidemic on our hands. Listen, you and I have to take our break for the news at the bottom of the hour. Please stand by, Alan. And uh, for more information, Exxon Nation, visit www.ti.com. .ubc.ca. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell, Alan Castles, and I return on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Alan Castles is our special guest this hour, and his website is www.ti.ubc.ca. And he is the author of Seeking Sickness, uh, Selling Sickness, and the Cochrane Collaboration, Medicine's Best Kept Secret, which are available at Amazon and many brick-and-mortar bookstores and libraries. Also, just before we get back to to the interview, tell me about TEDx Talk. Uh, yeah, I did. I've done two of them. Uh, the, the the last one was basically about what I called um, kind of medicine's unspoken heroes. The the fact that you know we have a number of um, I guess you might want to call them brave whistleblowers in the mm-hmm. medical world who've been very uh, very important in sort of highlighting some of the problems with medical research and and. Uh, and, and, and really sort of bringing attention to how we can improve things. I mean, I think the, uh, one of the best examples that I, that I used in that uh, TEDx talk was uh, this guy named um, Ignace Semmelweis. He was an obstetrician in the 1840s and 50s um, in Austria and um, noticed that uh, women who were... Um, uh, they had two hospitals, one where the women were treated by midwives and one they were treated by physicians. And the death rate amongst the mothers and babies in the do- in the hospital that was run by the, 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 the doctors mm-hmm. was twice or three times as high as it was with the ones with the midwives. And Semmelweis determined that uh, the physicians in the hospitals were doing autopsies 
and then delivering babies. And there was something about something on their hands. And he basically said, let's bring in an experiment and get the doctors to wash their hands. And when that happened, the death rate dropped through the floor. And, and clearly, he didn't know what the, theory, the germ theory, this was way before Pasteur, um, basically saying that physicians need to wash their hands in order to save their patients. And I use that kind of as a metaphor for the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, where I believe that you get better medical care if physicians were washing their hands of the influence of the drug companies. Now, now, how can listeners listen to your TEDx talks? Uh, they're all they're they're both on uh, on uh, YouTube. You could just Google my name and TEDx. You'll find them quite easily. All right, mental health is a big issue. For sure. How come more attention isn't being paid to mental health compared to the rest of the pharmaceutical? Um, yeah, you know, that, that's a good question, but I would argue that there's an awful lot of, of attention paid to mental health, though we don't really have great systems in place to deal with people that are dealing with mental health, other than uh, mostly drugs. I mean, psychiatry is mostly about tweaking uh, people's brain or mm -hmm. or, or um, uh, serotonin levels with drugs, yes. uh, which a lot of people find ultimately quite unsatisfying, not effective, and the drugs that they use are uh, can often come come with a whole range of side effects, including increasing risks of suicide of all things. Uh, um, and you know, I think I think the. Uh, and we've done some work in the past about um, the the major antidepressants that are used for you know people who uh, uh, prescribe drugs for depression and so on. And the problems with these drugs are becoming legion. I mean, we're 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 starting to understand how difficult it is for people to stop taking antidepressants, um, the serious problems that, that people undergo when they try to stop. And just the um, the real lack of, of of alternatives. I mean, I think when you look at the research around mental health, that that um, cognitive behavioral therapy, this would be like talk therapy and so on, is uh, way more effective than uh, pharmaceuticals, though it's not paid for as much. So someone who has uh, you know difficulty in a difficult life patch, instead of getting the kind of counseling and cognitive behavioral therapy they need, there's a good chance a doctor will prescribe a drug. And that uh, is often the beginning of a long problem for many people. Right. Um, uh, where it's not a solution. It's not even a Band-Aid. Um, it's just another uh, problem on, you know, added to the list of problems that you already have. Does the pharmaceutical companies make more money when it comes to uh, mental health issues compared to physiological issues, or is it the other way around? Yeah, no, I, I think the uh, I don't I don't actually know um, though mental health or physical health. I think probably the the vast majority of the drugs that we get prescribed mm -hmm. would be for physical uh, symptoms. You know, things like blood pressure yeah. and cholesterol and uh, and uh, blood sugar, uh, you know, diabetes drugs, um, drugs for cancer, and so on. 
probably that would be the, the, the vast bulk of drugs. At the same time, um, we increasingly see the marketing and prescribing of drugs for for schizophrenia. Uh, these would be antipsychotic drugs that are increasingly used for people who don't have psychosis, who aren't uh, bipolar, who don't have schizophrenia, and they get prescribed these super powerful drugs that have whole ranges of problems. We've, you know, in, in every province in Canada, um, the the a large majority of the seniors in long-term care facilities are going to be prescribed drugs called atypical antipsychotics. Uh, these would be drugs like Seroquel or uh, Risperidone and so on. Super powerful drugs. Uh, very important for people that have schizophrenia, but they're being often used for um, in long-term care facilities for old people to calm them down and, and you know turn them into zombies. It's really an appalling uh, state of affairs when we're using drugs as sort of chemical uh, straitjackets on older people. Well, aren't we doing the same thing with younger people by putting them on Ritalin? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Ritalin's a different, a different story. By the way, I should, I should tell you something, and this is very interesting research that we did, um, here in British Columbia. We looked at, at, um, children who are prescribed, um, uh, drugs for ADHD for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And we looked at, um, what we call the birth month. So we looked at children who are, uh, say born between January and June versus those kids born between uh, July and December. And guess what we found? The kids who were born in the latter part of the year, so these would be the younger kids yeah. in the class, had 50 to 70% higher rates of attention deficit disorder drugs uh, compared to the older children in the class. You, you might say, well, what the heck's going on there? Yeah. Well, Younger kids who perhaps aren't as mature and able to sit down and sit still and shut up <laughs> are increasingly being um, uh, medicated for having behavioral problems. Uh, this is something that, that this research we did here in British Columbia was replicated in four or five other countries found the same thing. The younger kids are being... Um, medicalized for behavioral problems and are being prescribed um, these very strong uh, amphetamines or or stimulants that are that are affecting their brains um, you know we, we think that that if there's a genuine medical problem that the drugs might help but when you're it's clear that there's evidence that this is not a medical problem for a lot of these kids. This is a social issue, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. <laughs> this is the fact that the teacher's got 30 kids in the class and two or three boys that are uh, being little buggers and won't sit still. And um, the teacher tells the parents that unless you take Johnny to the doctor to get him sort of chemically altered, you know, so maybe the teacher just really needs uh, a little bit of help in the classroom. But what about the government stepping in and taking control and saying, hey, you just can't do that? Yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting when you say the government because uh, most of the med medical practice would say, well, we're not, we're not, we don't, we don't listen to the government. We, we don't let the government tell us what to do. But they're licensed by the government. The government has That's the right true. to do that. 
it's true. They and they do to some extent. I mean, certainly the opioid crisis has shown yeah. us that the government or certainly the the regulatory bodies, the say the colleges of physicians, are very much willing to st step in and sort of say, look, you have to improve uh, your practice in this area. Uh, but the government, in terms of them um, directly uh, influencing prescribing, that that simply doesn't happen. Well, after all, the government does make tax money off the big pharma, and if they were to kind of slap big pharma on the wrist through the doctors, they'd start they they'd make less money. Oh, I but, get it. Okay. Yeah, but at the same time, the governments are huge buyers of drugs too, right? Yeah, they're, exactly. They're, they're, yeah. And and so. Um, you know, I don't want to brag about my province of British Columbia, but we, we do have some things right. And one of the things that we have right is that um, we have a bit of a firewall between the drug companies and the government in terms of reducing the amount of influence of the, of the companies. Alan, I hate to do this, my friend, but you and I have to take our final break. This is a very interesting conversation, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, discussing this with us. Excellent. Quite enjoy it. All right. Stand by, my friend. Here we go. And uh, Alan and I will be back as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Send me your emails. Send me your comments. If you've got a special guest you'd like to, you know, have on the show, or if there's something that I said that you disagree with, Exxon at ExxonRadioTV.com. We'll be back after this break. Don't go away. Exonation Alan Castles is our special guest. We're talking about uh, Big Pharma, amongst other things. And Alan, how did you get involved in doing the work that you're doing? You know, I started uh, a research project when I was in university still, uh, doing a master's degree. And, um, and, we, and the, 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 the study there was around inf you know, changing the way the provincial government was going to cover uh, uh, you know, certain classes of drugs. Basically, if you had drugs that are equally effective, it would make sense to try to pick the, the, the least expensive uh, and provide coverage for those. This is a hugely um, controversial policy in the mid-90s in British Columbia, and that was my uh, the beginning of a what was going to be a small research project. Uh, it became a career for me. Um, I just found the... the you know, the, real, the, the, the thing that fascinates me the most is that between what the companies and the experts say about drugs and what the, the actual research and what the, the evidence says about the drug, there's often a huge gap. And this gap is that, is that people really are, are bamboozled and, and fooled by, um, by, uh, by what they hear from mm -hmm. advertising and so on. I mean, that, the, the example that, that, that really shocked me, and, and I can remember this, is that there was an advertisement for this drug for osteoporosis that was um, proclaiming to reduce the rate of hip fractures by 50%. And I'm like, what? That is a that is amazing. If if you know, hip fractures are a huge public health problem. Sure are. And when I looked at the study, 
say, well, how many of these women who had osteoporosis, they were high risk, how many of them had a hip fracture in the whatever four years that the trial was on? Well, um, about two out of 100, about 2%. Um, those are the women taking the placebo. But if you took the drug, it would reduce that from two down to one. So only mm -hmm. one in 100 women had a hip fracture. But really, the drug helps 50% of people. How is that? Well, if you go from two down to one, that's a 50% drop. And so the advertising, the marketing, the information to doctors was all about this 50% reduction when in fact it was a one in a hundred reduction. <laughs> and that kind of statistical bamboozlement I started to see everywhere and was really quite shocked at how even, you know, um, even today, 20, 25 years later, you still see advertisements that use this misleading uh, relative risk reductions. And uh, that that has kind of turned me into a, an activist in a sense, and someone who wants to say, look, people need to be able to have a good, clear understanding about how much a drug is going to help them before they take the drug. They need to know that if, does the drug help one in a hundred people or 50 in a hundred people? That's really important information. And, uh, and you know, the, the deeper that you dive into the research on pharmaceuticals, the more you realize that Many of the drugs are very important, but still uh, have very small effects, much much smaller than most people would realize. So how can we rectify the, the uh, bamboozling effect that Big Pharma has taken over the, over the population with the help of social media, online advertising, radio and television advertising? Where, you know, where do we go? Well, I, I think people have to demand independent information. I mean, that's that I think is is the is the solution to everything in the sense of you want your physician to be getting information that's paid for by government or perhaps by their own professional society, not from a pharmaceutical company. And um, until we uh, put a proper firewall uh, up against mm -hmm. uh, you know between the drug companies and the doctors, they're going to continue to to consume biased information, and that is going to influence uh, people's health. And I think as a patient, you got to be able to ask hard questions. Like if you're about to start on a on a, a drug regime, say something that is going to influence, say, your cholesterol, you need to know how will the drug help? How many people out of 100, like me, would take a drug for say five years and what it will be their level of benefit. And a good doctor is going to be able to tell you that information. Uh, if you've never had a heart attack or stroke and you're in your mid 60s or 70s and you're taking a cholesterol lowering drug, the benefits are probably less than 1%, maybe, maybe 1% to 2%. So 98 to 99% of the people that are taking that drug are not going to have any benefit. They're going to spend money. They're going to experience side effects related to the drug, uh, and they'll probably not see any benefit. So people need to ask hard questions before they start on a, a lifetime of, of new drugs. What about the the sharp increase in the cost of drugs? How do, how does big pharma you know uh, justify that? 
well, you know, certainly in the U.S., they justify it because they claim that those drugs uh, uh, are, are expensive because they spend a lot of money in research and development, um, which is not quite true because most of what the pharmaceutical industry spends on is marketing, uh, communications and marketing, selling their drugs um, or, or doing things to extend their patents, not anything to to uh, increase the, the, the value of the drug. Um, you know, the thing is, is that a lot of the most useful treatments that we've got today are generic. They've yeah. been around for a long time. Uh, they're cheap. Uh, lots of other companies can, can make them. And I would say the, the, the vast majority of conditions that people have can be treated with generic drugs. Not everything. I mean, uh, there, there are some newer treatments that are, um, might have some level of benefit and um, and are still under patent. Therefore, they're quite expensive. But no, the, the, the vast majority of conditions that people have, you don't need a brand name drug. You can be probably, for the most part, treated with a generic drug. But once again, it depends on the marketing and the advertising that the drug uh, the drug company puts into it and how they... They get the the purse the the doctor or the yeah. I should say the patient to say well no I, I've I've heard about this drug and this is the one I want. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, people get uh, easily confused about what's valuable and what isn't. Uh, but I'll tell you, in Ontario, there are probably five to six thousand drugs on the market, prescription drugs on the market. Mm -hmm. um, how many of those are on the World Health? Uh, organization's essential drugs list. I could not tell you, my friend. It's about 340. So what about the other ones? Well, the other ones are not <laughs> would not be considered by the World Health Organization to be essential. They are me too drugs. They might be uh, different formulations and so on. But yes, the, the, the number of actual essential pharmaceuticals uh, is shockingly small. Can you give our listeners an example of the of the essential drugs compared to the ones that are not essential? Re uh, okay. Yeah. Yep. For, for example, a drug like uh, say you've got tr trouble with your blood sugar, and um, uh, the, the 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 first drug that a physician should consider if you need one at all would be a drug called metformin. Yeah, I take it myself. Okay, yeah, it's a generic drug. It's been yeah. around a long time. It's got some reasonable evidence of effectiveness. Though I can tell you there are probably 30 or 40 drugs for diabetes on the market, mm -hmm. way more expensive than metformin. Uh, you know, I'm not, not saying twice as expensive. We're talking 10 to 100 times more expensive, but have worse evidence and have higher rates of mortality associated with Holy them. Holy cow. But those drugs are actually the ones that you see advertised on TV as well, where they they advertise drugs as being new. Maybe they're better at lowering your blood sugar. But what's really important is whether does it prevent heart attacks or strokes. And we have that kind of evidence with metformin, mm -hmm. uh, some evidence anyways, but not with a lot of the newer diabetes drugs. And that's what you see advertised on TV. And uh, people, um, you know, they think, well, if they're, they're advertised, they must be really good. No, not at all. Th those newer drugs, by the way, would not be on the World Health Organization's essential drugs list. So is it your opinion that there should be more control over the advertising of pharmaceutical products on through the mass media? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, not just, well, but partly because 
people need good quality information right and and they need it from an independent source and um you know finding good quality information and i know this because this is what i do for a living mm -hmm. is very difficult for people to do i i know where to look because i've been doing this for a long time but finding good quality drug information is kind of like finding a needle in a haystack and the marketing just makes the haystack bigger so you want to avoid any commercial sources of drug information. If you've got diabetes, you go to the Diabetes Association, you're probably going to get, certainly when it comes to the information about the drugs, you're going to get biased information because that organization takes money from the pharmaceutical industry. They can't give independent information about drugs because they're paid by the manufacturers of these newer diabetes drugs. The the metformin <laughs> manufacturers are not rich and they're not uh, uh, trying to get their information to doctors. Alan, I hate to do this, my friend, but you and I have run out of time for tonight. We'll have you back on in the future because we still have so much to talk about. Thank you so much for the work you do. I sincerely uh, appreciate it. And appreciate uh, it. keep the great work up. And it's always nice talking to a fellow Canadian. Thank you for inviting me. That's been my great pleasure. Next donation, if you'd like more information, visit www.ti.ubc.ca. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away.